book of Luke, chapter 15, and um, I encourage you to follow along in your pew Bibles on page 740. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pies that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of God. So I appreciate that heartfelt prayer for my health and my heart. I assure you that the doctors tell me, this is a follow-on from last week's sermon, if, if you weren't here. Uh, I, I note with some amusement the comment that in most respects I'm a good example for you. I suppose that's a reference to the fact, my, my comment that I used to eat ice cream a quart at a time. I plan on returning that, to that lifestyle at some point. Because the doctor tells me now with this stent, I have a 90% chance of going 10 years without another incident. And given that I don't, given that my goal in life has always been to live about another 10 years from where I am now, I figure about nine years from now I'm going to start eating ice cream by the gallon. Uh, You may choose whether to follow that part of the example of my life or not, but I'll leave it to you. Now, My family came back here in the year 2000, and my wife was quite an athlete when she was a youth, and and she really, when we got back, for the first time ever, she started watching sports. And if you know what things were like in the year 2000, you know, shortly after that, Drew Bledsoe got injured and Tom Brady took over, and and then the Red Star, Red Sox, ever since 2000, ever since we came back to the country, the Red Sox have been doing well. And, and uh, you know, these are not the sports teams I grew up with as a New Englander. The Patriots were never any good. And the Red Sox, well, 
you know, that Jimmy Fallon movie, Fever Pitch, captured it exactly. When the, the spectators, the fans are talking in the, in the stands, they say, oh, those Red Sox, they'll break your heart. And I love that line from the movie because that's what we always said. You know, Red Sox always good until mid-season. Then after the All-Star break, they break your heart. That's the, the classic expression. If you know anything about the Red Sox, that was what fans said, that, that very line. So we're watching the games, and, and they're doing well, and I keep telling my kids and my wife, don't get attached to them. They're going to break your heart. And then suddenly, 2004, I couldn't believe You know, 2004, they're losing in the series against the Yankees, you know, three games to none, and I said, that's the Red Sox. You know, finally I was vindicated. And then they come back and win. And then 2007, they win. You know, the world has shaken on its foundations. But now all things are right again. (laughs) For the last year or two, you know, the last year and a half, these are the Red Sox I knew and loved so well growing up. The ones who cause you agony. Well, I bring all that up just as background to the intro, because here's the thing. This week, or this whole month, we've been looking at this series of salvation metaphors in Scripture. And this week, we saw one of them in the news. There was an article uh, for, in the Boston Globe. For the Red Sox, redemption and hope. And redemption is one of those salvation metaphors we've been looking at. But I I thought, oh, this is intriguing. But as I read through it, it had a a looser definition of redemption. You know, basically, the the author writes, you know, they've, they've created a greasy stench of disappointment since September 2011. A fresh start doesn't instantly delete the old frustrations, especially when they're not particularly old and not yet forgotten. And the author goes through the players, several of the players, one by one, to say, who is in need of redemption? Which players? And, and is this whole team capable of redemption? And that's kind of loosely how we use the term. And redemption is just kind of like a self-redemption. I've done something stupid, and now I've got to redeem myself. So I went to my dictionary, and oddly enough, oh, now I should tell you, my dictionary comes from my first year in private high school. My dictionary comes from 1968 or 67. But in then, the first definition of redemption is to buy back. The second definition is to liberate, by pay, liberate for payment or by payment, as in the sense of ransom. Only down near the end of the list does it use this sense of redemption, to make worthwhile, to, to restore one's reputation. Well, basically, all the metaphors we've looked at so far have been challenging because they don't come from our daily experience. In our daily experience, we use redemption to mean one thing. We know the word, but we use it to mean one thing. Whereas in Scripture, it means something else specifically, particularly something else. And then we looked, we've also looked at justification, and that's not a word we use much anymore. And if we use it, we use it in a different sense. We use the word, looked at propitiation, and we don't ever use that word anymore much. So most of these metaphors are more obscure to us. They all tell us something about what Jesus did by his death for us. But mostly they're pretty obscure. Today's metaphor, we'll look at reconciliation. 
And this is one we know intuitively. We use the same word, and we use it in the same, word, same way today. So it's a more familiar metaphor. But often we don't think about its implications for our relationship with God. So today we'll look at reconciliation, what it implies about our relationship with God, and what hope it offers us. But before we go there, the essence of learning something new is repetition. So let's think about this for a moment. If you look in your sermon outline, in your bulletin, there's a chart. I wonder how much of that you can fill out. Let's work on it together. Uh, Justification. What's the setting for justification? If you are justified, in common language, if you are justified, where are you? Court of law. Excellent. What was the problem? Sin is? Capital offense. A capital crime. You should be executed. But you're not because the solution is? Christ is always a solution, right? What particular about Christ? The cross. He died for us. So he took the penalty due us. He took the capital. We, we committed a capital crime. He took the punishment due us. And he died in our place. Uh, we'll talk, we will, we'll skip over ramification because the different metaphors have different ramifications. Redemption. If you've been redeemed, where were you? Uh, you were. Oh, wait, let's, let's back up a minute. Let, let me ask it, start in a different place. If you've been redeemed, what were you? You were a slave. So where did redemption occur? In a slave market. You know, you can look, if you do a Google search for slave market, a lot of, t- a lot of cities in America used to have slave markets. And there's still engravings and pictures of these things you can find online. A particular section of the public marketplace where slaves were bought and sold. And the solution was, oh, wait a minute, back up a minute. Who else, apart from slaves, who in Scripture was redeemed? Who did God redeem in Scripture? Because this is a really important part of the metaphor. Where does redemption occur? Anybody? Israel from Egypt. Yeah, hey, excellent. So, so redemption is, is the buying of a slave, buying of a POW out of slavery. It also refers to the, the delivery of uh, Israel from Egypt. And this is important because uh, what was the solution to our slavery to sin? Christ as Passover lamb. Whoa, there you go. We really need some rewards here, you know. Well, no, we can't give sweets anymore, right? That's bad, bad example. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. So basically, the Passover lamb. How did God deliver Israel from Egypt? The Passover was slain, and the blood protected the Israelites, and God saved them through the the, ex, the death of the firstborn and brought them out. And Jesus is the Passover lamb, whose death saves us from. Uh, from execution, and then d- delivers us out of condemnation. Okay. Oh, propitiation. What is propitiation? What, what, what does sin do in propitiation? What's the idea of what sin does? Or, or who, oh, wait, let me rephrase the question. Whoever needs propitiating? Okay, a king could? Under what circumstances? 
What do we, when we're propitiating, what are we doing? Okay, we're appeasing. You know, any, anytime there's propitiation going on, what you've got is a king, a ruler, you've got a, a god who's violently angry. And the old metaphor from the old movies I illustrated it with is, you know, the whole idea of a volcano and the volcano is, you know, a nature god and the idea that the volcano is erupting because the gods are angry and so you throw a young teenage girl into the volcano and somehow that appeases the god and the volcano calms down. What you have is the notion here of God's anger towards sin. And then Jesus dies and takes away. He slates God's wrath. He takes away God's anger toward us. So all of these metaphors have a particular meaning. Now, reconciliation. Reconciliation is a bit different. It's different because it's easier for us to understand. Who needs to be reconciled today? I mean, this is, you don't even need me to tell you this part of it. It's so straightforward. When do you, when do you have reconciliation today? A broken relationship. So reconciliation is something we commonly experience. You've got a a broken relationship, and then you reconcile two friends. You reconcile a father and a son. You reconcile family members or friends who've broken off their relationship. It's different. It, It presupposes, first of all, you have a relationship to begin with. And then that relationship is broken. And now you're at enmity with each other. You're in conflict with each other. And then God... Oh, no, sorry. Then that relationship has to be, somebody has to intervene and help restore that relationship. It's the restoration of a broken relationship. And and so this metaphor seems a lot easier for us because it happens. We have parents and children that are at odds and need to be reconciled. We have broken relationship between friends, and we can either turn our back and walk away forever, or maybe we can try and figure out some way to be reconciled. And this is the metaphor of reconciliation. So it's, it's familiar to us from our daily lives and our daily experiences. And it's familiar to us from Scripture. You see, we saw from the Scripture reading the, the, the story of the prodigal son. Now, if you read that story in context, the main point of that story is something else. But if we just read a piece of that story... And we often misconstrue the story because the story is really not about the younger son and the father and the reconciliation between them. That's not really the point of the story. But for the purposes of today, all I want to do is illustrate the notion of reconciliation, and that story does it well. What you have is a young son raised in in his family, and finally he wants to gain his independence. And so he says to his father, you know all that money you're going to give me when you die? I can't wait until you die. I want that money now. So that already breaks the relationship. This is incredibly rude to say to anybody today, let alone in that age. I want that money now. And so the youngest son gets that money, and then he uses it to go out of state, go out of country, and live a wild life. And then finally... When he's living in just deplorable circumstances, you know, it, it talks about him eating the food that was for the pigs. Now, you, you, this doesn't mean much to us, you know, um, you know, uh, but Jews looked at pigs as, Jews would not eat pork, right? Pigs were dirty animals. And eating pig food, I mean, it's just no lower form of life. So this fella hits rock bottom. He goes below bottom. He's living among Gentiles. He's eating food that he can't even eat pigs, and now he's eating pig food. 
And then he comes to his senses. And he says, uh, I, can go, I can live better if I go back home. So he comes to his senses and, and he says, look, I know my father might not forgive me. All I got to do is I'll just offer to be his worker, his hired hand. I'll be offered to be his farmhand. I'll, you know, I'll work for minimum wage. And so he went back and, and as he approached. And this is a metaphor for our human relationship. Now, we have to be careful how we apply this. This is a, a metaphor for the human relationship with God. It says, by nature, and God created us. And originally, we had a relationship with God. And then either because we wanted to be independent and we went our own way, or we ignored God, or we lived in ways that God forbids, that are repulsive to God, we walked away. We alienated ourselves from God. And this is a picture. The prodigal son, the younger son, is a picture of how we alienate, or our human beings have alienated themselves from God. Not we as Christians, but we as humans have alienated ourselves from God. And Jesus is telling this story as an example for, for his hearers. Come back. Notice the context for the story. Luke chapter 15, 1 and 2. Jesus was eating with people that were outcasts in their society, people that were considered antisocial, sinful, tax collectors and sinners, a class of people that were despised because they cooperated with the foreign government, because they, of their moral behavior, whatever it is. These were people that were despised because they didn't live holy lifestyles. And Jesus is, is welcoming them to God. And those who were virtuous people looked at him and said, this man can't be holy because he's associating with people that are not holy. He's inviting disrespectful people, disreputable people back in the presence of God. He's inviting people that aren't holy or aren't virtuous to have a relationship with God. This guy can't be holy. And Jesus is trying to send the message. We're alienated by, as human beings, we're alienated from God. But God's inviting us. Come back. And it's more than an invitation. Because in that story, as the young man comes to his senses and he starts on his way back, it, it, the, the story doesn't resolve when he finally reaches home. The story resolves before he reaches home. Because the father in the story is looking out, scanning the horizon, looking for that sun. He doesn't wait for the sun to come back. And the sun never has to say, oh, I'll just be your hired hand. I don't have to be your son anymore. I know I don't deserve to be your son. I'll be your hired hand and I'll just work for you. The son doesn't have to say that. Because the, the father calls for the a big party to celebrate. And, and so the message of the story is that, yes, human beings are alienated from God. You see how this is a softer image than what we've seen before. In this story, the father's not angry. He's longing. He's looking. He's hoping. He's waiting. And as soon as he sees that son and recognizes his body shape, his, his, his gait as he walk, walks toward home, the father runs out. 
Now, in the first century, dignified men didn't run. They wore robes. You don't run in a robe. And the man grabs up his robes, and he runs out to see his son. And he embraces him. You see how this metaphor adds a softer dimension to the ones we've been looking at so far. The reason that the New Testament uses so many different metaphors, you know, somebody observed, commented, all these metaphors are talking about the same thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about the problem that sin creates in our life. They're all talking about the solution that Jesus brings to our life in our relationship with God. They're all different ways of looking at that same thing. But why different ways? See, no one single metaphor can tell us every dimension of the problem posed by sin or of the solution presented by Jesus. So every one of them shines a different light on this relationship. And so we see propitiation. God is angry. What we used to say as kids, he's mad enough to spit. God is angry. And that's a dimension of our relationship with God. Sin offends God. Everything in God rebels against sin. And so he's angry with sinners. But that's only one dimension. And justification. Sin is like a crime. It's criminal behavior. And God, as a judge, he's not angry, he's not personally involved, but God, as a judge, is going to declare a verdict on that sin. And then redemption. Sin enslaves us and requires God's powerful intervention. But all of these are powerful metaphors. Uh, Justification, uh, redemption, propitiation. They all assume a God who is strong and powerful and fierce and just. So we don't want to forget about reconciliation because it shows us a different dimension of God's character and a different dimension of our sin and the effect of our sin. Maybe some of you have heard about this recent sadness from a famous pastor. You know, a lot of us would know the name Rick Warren. His book is the biggest, non, biggest nonfiction best-selling, bestseller in, in history at least in, in English speaking. You know, 25 million copies of this second book about their purpose-driven life. He's so famous, he was invited to give one of the prayers and invocation at uh, President Obama's first inauguration. He's so famous that the Boston Globe, are now, you know, on the front page of Boston Globe, not even a California newspaper, Rick Warren's church is in California, his recent... Uh, the recent death of his son by suicide, one of his, his third son by suicide, is in the press. And the Time magazine covered it, Boston Globe covered it. It's not exactly the point of reconciliation, but it shows us the human dimension of this metaphor. That God cares for us like Rick Warren cared for his son. And God grieves for us, like Rick Warren grieves for the loss of his son. My family once worshipped in a church in Chicago where the pastor and his wife had adopted, well, the fact that the child was adopted has only no relevance except for the fact that you, you don't know what the genetic, genetic influences are when you adopt, you know. Uh, you have a bit of... You, you can't control 
what, how your own kids turn out, but you have some idea of how they might turn out because of the genetic influences, you know, the, the risks they face. But anyway, whatever. This pastor had a daughter who would every so often, teenage daughter, who would every so often, apparently for no good reason, as near as we could tell, would run away from home and live on the streets. And he'd have to come to church and see whether he could preach that Sunday if his daughter ran away that weekend. And by her running away, like this youngest son in the parable ran away, you know, it brings up this alienation and this fear and this hurt. And really what reconciliation, the basic assumption is this, is that sin breaks our relationship with God. But there's a human dimension to it or an emotional dimension to it. Because God is that father scanning that horizon. He's not just the judge who's going to declare a verdict dispassionately. He's not just the angry God who's going to punish those who offend him. God is that father in the parable scanning the horizons. Never knowing, is it today? Waiting every day, is it next year? Is it three years from now? The father sits there scanning the horizon, waiting for that child to return. The father, the pastor I knew, would sit there wondering what harm would befall his daughter and who would call him first, the daughter ready to come home or the police, because they'd found his daughter injured. So reconciliation brings a hugely important dimension to this whole understanding of what sin does to us and what our sin does to God. And as that broken relationship, how that affects God, there's a very human, very emotional dimension to this story. It's a loss of relationship, but not just a loss of relationship that affects us. It's a loss of relationship which affects God. And that's the point of this portion of the prodigal son. But the story of the prodigal son is not complete. Jesus told it to make one point while he was still alive. And most people, when he told that story, didn't realize that there was more to the story of God's relationship with us. You see, when that son came to his senses, he was able to pick himself up and go back to his father. But there's more to the story. That story is not complete parallel to our relationship with God. Because even when we come to our senses, we can't just return to God. Our turning from God, our disrespect, our sin, all of that poses a problem. It's an objective problem. It's not just that our hearts need to melt, that we need to come to our senses and go back to God. Even if we want to come back to God, there is this obstacle. There is this problem. Colossians 1 puts it like this. It takes the same metaphor of alienation and reconciliation, but it tells us there's more going on. There's a, there's a bigger problem here. Colossians 1 says this. Once you were alienated from God, We're like that younger son, far off at a distance. Once you were alienated from God 
and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You see the problem? We're alienated from our relationship with God. We're enemies in our minds. We have a disposition against God because of our evil behavior. So everything we are and is is hostile toward God. How do we solve it? We don't solve it. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22. But now he, God, though we were his enemies, but now he has reconciled you. God reconciled. We're not the younger man that comes back to the father. We're the younger man alienated. But now in this story, in the actual version, it's the father who comes to us. He has reconciled you. And how did he do that? By Christ's physical body through death to present you holy. As long as that sin persisted, we could not be reconciled to God. So God dealt with that sin in, through Christ's death, through our justification, through Christ's atoning sacrifice. God removed that sin. Jesus' contemporaries looked at him and said, this man eats with sinners. He can't be a holy man. Jesus looked ahead to the cross and knew what was coming. He could be holy and offer salvation to sinners because he was going to die. And only then. So this is a story about the transformation that has to come overcome all of us in order to come to faith in Christ. We have to see our deplorable situation our desperation, our alienation. But more than that, we have to see in Christ the solution because we can't change and come back. Unlike the Red Sox, we can't redeem ourselves. We come in repentance before Christ. And this is really what we celebrate this morning. That Christ has given his life to redeem us. He's given his life to justify us. He's given his life to deal with the sin so that we can be reconciled to God. And so we read Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All of this is from God. It's not our invention. It's not our initiative. It's not our doing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. This is what reconciliation is. That God reached out to his enemies, sent his son to die for his enemies and take away their sin so that we could become his friends so that we could be reconciled to him. So this is really a message, a reminder to Christians about what God has done to bring us to this table. But it's also an invitation to those who have never acknowledged God, whose refusal to acknowledge God has alienated them from God, to those whose behavior has taken them from God, either their attitude of resistance to God or just the way they live. 
You know, it's easy enough to think. It's easy enough to go so far, either with so many years in rebellion against God or so far in the way we live toward God that we can say there is no hope of reconciliation. But this is the message of the metaphor, and it's the message of the table, is that God saw his enemies, and he didn't hate them because they were his children. He saw them, and he cared for them. He cared about them. And he sent his one son to die, that he might be able to take, deal with the sin of all his other children and invite them back into his presence. This is the invitation communicated by the table, that God loves even his enemies, and that any of us, at any time, can be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Father, we would thank you for your compassion for us, your love for us, that even while we ignored you, even while we wanted our independence from you, even while we walked away from you, yet you sent your son for us to call us back. We thank you, Father, that you are the God of second chances, that you are the God of reconciliation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.